This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to the one-year anniversary edition of Money Reimagined, or as my co-host Sheila Warren has taken to calling it, our potiversary. For this super-duper extra special edition, landing one year after we launched Money Reimagined, We're bringing back a pair of guests that nature had always clearly intended should be in the same podcast recording together. Raul Pal, the CEO of Real Vision, an articulate analyst of crypto's place in the investing and broader macro environment, and Jill Carlson, the founder of the Open Money Initiative, which is working on improving money for society at large, especially for financially excluded people in poorer parts of the world. Back in December last year, we brought Raul and Jill onto the show to foster something of a debate. So that's possibly too strong a word for what emerged from that discussion. They addressed what we described in our show notes at the time as a battle for Bitcoin's soul. The talk then was all about the institutional money lining up to invest in Bitcoin. And the question we were asking was whether the presence of large investors, the kind that Raoul talks to regularly, was counterproductive to the mission that people like Jill have set in developing cryptocurrency solutions for the masses. Our guests disagreed on some stuff, but found a lot of middle ground. Now, 10 months later, Bitcoin is four times what it was back then in terms of price, although it's well down from the $65,000 high it soared to after institutional and corporate investors piled in in the early months of 2021. The rollercoaster ride since then has included some dramatic developments, such as a crackdown in China and a new regulatory push in the US under new President Joe Biden's choice to lead the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler. We've had companies like Tesla come in and then pull out of Bitcoin as concerns grew over its environmental impact. We've had the country of El Salvador make it legal tender. And on the Ethereum side, we've seen some tremendous new innovation in fields such as NFTs and DeFi, as well as an explosion of new layer one protocols to compete with Ethereum. Jill and Raul will help us put that past year into perspective. But before they do, Let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hey, Sheila. Hey, Michael. What a year it's been. Um, <laughs> yes, quite a year. Quite a year. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of chaos, a lot of, of craziness, but that's sort of par for the course in this sector. I'm wondering whether your potiversary term now is something that's going to take happy off. Happy potiversary. Yes, happy <laughs> I'm just going to know of the two of us, I'm the one that makes the dad joke. So, you know, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, that is a bit of a dad joke. Yeah, I, I got to admit. It's been fun, <laughs> Sheila. It really has been a wild, fun ride with you. So thank you for being on the journey with me. On that note, since we've got a tight show today, let's bring in our guests. So let's say hello to Jill and Raul. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Good hey, to see you. I mean, no shortage of things to talk about if we do a year recap, right? It's the question's more like, where do we begin? (laughs) No shortage of content. (laughs) Why don't we start with that then, guys? I mean, each of you, give us a sense of what you think has been the most important development in the past 12 months. So, uh, Jill, leave it to you first. 
Starting with a very small question, aren't you there, Michael? What is the most important development <laughs> of the last you on the spot, months? You know. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think that for me, if I was to choose one, it would be just the influx of institutions, which is interesting. The fact that the last time that Raul and I were on the show, that was the topic that we were talking about. And at the time, it was more sort of in theory, you know, is this now the moment that we're finally going to see financial institutions, corporates, what have you, enter the space. And indeed, over the last year, we have, whether that's investment institutions uh, looking to not only now invest in the likes of Bitcoin, but also Ethereum and other tokens, but also even extending into the DeFi space and looking to, to get more active with those products. And then also, you know, you mentioned in the lead on to, to the show here today, you know, the likes of Tesla, things that we haven't mentioned yet, the likes of PayPal and Visa and so forth. And I think that if you had asked me a year ago or even three years ago, you know, would we see the sort of institutional activity that we see in the space today? Even I, as an optimist, would have been skeptical or would have had a hard time seeing that. So that's, to me, the biggest theme of import. How about you, Raul? What was maybe, I mean, the biggest surprise or just the most important thing? I think the only important thing is even broader, which is the adoption of crypto as an asset class is now the fastest growing adoption of any technology in all human history. So at the same stage in the internet back in 1997, we had 150 million users, and it was growing at 63% a year, which is the fastest adoption of any technology we'd ever seen. Crypto has continued the path of growing at 113% a year in adoption terms. So that's not just institutions, it's around the world. And this wow. is the most remarkable thing, is the continued pace of adoption, and it doesn't stop. So all of these things we're talking about are just mere milestones in this ongoing. Now, if you extrapolate the maths pretty straightforward, you get to a billion people by 2024. We can't get our heads around that yet, but it's coming. Mm. Where is this adoption happening? Is it geographically distributed? Is it still primarily investment as the use case? Uh, what are you all seeing and how has that changed over the year? So if you think of institutions, well, they don't count as multiple users. So interesting because, you know, there'll be single accounts. So it's not necessarily that because those numbers aren't big. The amount of capital is gigantic. It's the reality of the growth of crypto in India, Nigeria, all sorts of emerging markets and just around the world in general. As more and more people realize that this is a vehicle to not only save and invest, but also to create businesses from and to layer on top of the internet in that kind of internet of value concept. So it's super broad and it's global. And, you know, I think Jill would be super pleased to see how many countries, you know, how many emerging countries are adopting this technology to get around the problems that many countries have had with currency and government and that kind of stuff. And Jill, I'd love your comments on that. I know one of the themes of the last time we had you two on was this kind of, is there a tension between the adoption by institutions and the adoption by what we traditionally call the unbanked, but I would call historically excluded populations? Yeah, I don't think that there is necessarily a tension uh, between the two. I think that in many ways they can be complementary. And I do think that the institutionalization of crypto helps to mature the market, which then helps really for anyone who wants to get into the space and use it, you know, reduces or it should at least theoretically reduce volatility. It should increase the accessibility of infrastructure and therefore access. However, I do want to 
bring about the the caveat here in the conversation around uh, what Raul was just talking about. Because while it is true that many emerging economies punch above their weight, at least in terms of you know things like internet access and even just overall economic activity, they punch above their weight in terms of their involvement in the crypto ecosystem. It still is primarily the bastion of the wealthier people in wealthier nations. And it's very tempting, especially for someone like me, who is very passionate about the use case for cryptocurrency in economies where there is less financial freedom and less financial access to want to take refuge there and say, oh, yes, that's where all of the activity is happening. When in reality, I think it's important to also temper that message and be realistic about the extent to which it has been adopted in those regions and in those places. And I think that there's also another degree of messiness there that's worth acknowledging, which is to say that, you know, in a lot of the countries that we're talking about, yes, it's being used in some cases by citizens in order to get their money offshore, to get their money out of an inflating currency, uh, to evade capital controls or other restrictions, to evade sanctions, and to survive. But very often that's also happening by strictly only the wealthy in those countries that have that access. And in some cases, it's happening by the people who are running those regimes themselves. And so it, it is a, a complex story and a complex narrative. And I think it's worth being clear and, and having that discussion as well. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. Well, let's focus on a country that is clearly a huge test case for what we're talking about. And I'm talking about El Salvador, where yeah. I think what you know, is potentially really valuable in this question around the trade-off we've been talking about, institutional investment versus use case for the masses, is the fact that there's a lightning solution to it. So we've got the potentially the low-cost transaction element that is critical, and there's a remittance use case and all these things that, that potentially make El Salvador a good place to test this out. And obviously now that it's legal tender and, and so forth, that just should drive this. But I suppose one of the things that I've been challenged with, and I wrote a column about this last week, is that I'm not sure that the crypto community, the Bitcoin community, has really sort of explained the narrative properly or driven the narrative. Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm just seeing what's being said here uh, in the US, but it still feels like the message is, hey, hodl and, you know, and get rich because that's what Bitcoin will get you, which really isn't of great use to somebody who's earning little more than you know, 10 bucks a day or whatever. If you've got your $30 grant, from the government, uh, which is you know, what was set up through the Chivo wallets, you're probably going to want to cash it out immediately because that money is really valuable right now. Uh, and you still think in terms of cash. Where do you think the, see things going there, Jill? I mean, is it on the right path or you know, what's the right approach in El Salvador? Yeah, well, I think that you're touching on a very important question, Michael, that's at, at the heart of all of this, which is what does adoption mean? It's all very well and good to be throwing out sort of the big numbers and the hockey stick style growth 
of crypto and saying, oh, adoption is taking off faster than any other technology in history. But what is that adoption for? To what end? And for many of the users of cryptocurrency, if, if we can call them that, the adoption really does center upon hodling, as you say. It, it centers upon investing in this and holding it for the long term. And you know that might mean it's an inflation hedge, that might mean it's a growth asset in somebody's portfolio. And this is a debate that's long raged in the Bitcoin community of does it count as using this thing if in fact what you're doing is simply hodling it? You know, Do you need to be transacting in it? Do you need to be demonstrating utility in another way? And I don't really fall into one camp or the other on that issue. It's not something that I feel strongly about. But I do feel strongly that in a place like El Salvador, it's not really good enough to try and bring this thing to market and say, okay, well, you know, here's this thing. Basically, what it's good for is, is holding on to and seeing and, and hoping it goes up. You know, basically, what it's being used for for you is, is as an investment vehicle when that's not really what people are looking for a solution to in that situation. You know, as you say, you're talking about a country and a population that uh, doesn't have sort of that same luxury and is, is looking to be able to go out and, and use it for the utility that it may bring. And I, I read your article, Michael, I thought that you brought up rightly that if it had been framed around the utility that it can provide in the form of something like remittances, I think it would have been a much stronger rollout than what's actually occurred. I think that starts, Jill, with something you and I have spoken about quite a bit, which is starting with the problem that you're trying to solve, which of course involves awareness and understanding of the community in which you're trying to roll out any technology or innovation. And so it's interesting to kind of consider, you know, in hindsight, I suppose, what it might have looked like had the maybe priorities of, this is true, I think, in all parts of the world. I think where we've seen more success is where the needs of the community were actually prioritized and put front and center as opposed to trying to port in maybe models that had worked in other places. I think if there's one theme of this year that I think we can all agree we've observed, it's just explosive growth you know, and experimentation. Uh, when we started the podcast last September, Michael, we were coming off of DeFi summer, right? So DeFi was kind of just had emerged into awareness. And now, of course, DeFi is getting all kinds of attention from all kinds of places all around the world. So a real question for you is, is this just you know speculative mania, or, or do you think that DeFi really is the foundation for a more open, accessible financial system? Certainly, we've seen kind of high finance translated into this decentralized model, but we haven't yet seen you know the average person be able to access some of this meaningfully. But curious to get your thoughts. It's early, and I think there is a speculative mania within it. Many projects trade at ridiculous valuations to start with. They start at unicorns with almost no users um, in terms of valuation. But the genie's out of the bottle. The technology's available, and it's going to be iterated and improved, and it will roll out in a way that people understand. Now, it's really going to become powerful once the central bank digital currencies roll out, because then everybody's in a digital world, and suddenly everything interconnects. So right now, it's clunky to use. It's a bit scary to use. Nobody really knows, you know, the average person doesn't really know how to do this. But soon it'll become more consumer facing. And that was the same with Bitcoin five years ago. And it was the same with, you know, all of these things. So that they're, they're early in their use cases. The technology's real. We haven't gone through a risk cycle. Nobody understands what the risks are yet. So I'm cautious, but hugely optimistic about it. So one of the things that occurs to me, Raoul, when I think about 
if we go back to the conversation we were just having, Bitcoin gets hodled uh, as opposed to being used. Is the potential that a DeFi architecture allows these two situations to coexist? And, and you've written and spoken brilliantly about Bitcoin as this core, pristine form of collateral, which when you start to think of becomes this base layer in the same way that you know US treasuries are to the underlying financial system. And then all the credit products that get built on top of that are the things that provide liquidity and essentially, therefore, the payment vehicles that build on top of that. Do you see this evolving that way? Is that the way in which we think about the investment institutional buy-in being the building block for this bigger future? It's not actually. clear, actually. It's less clear than I thought because Ethereum has actually become the internet of money right now. Mm. So anything you pay for in this whole space is priced in Ethereum, not Bitcoin. So it's clearly not a transactional currency, which is why going back to El Salvador, I kind of think they solved the wrong problem. The problem that they actually needed was a central bank digital currency because they're already pegged to the dollar and it's for remittance payments. And then Bitcoin could be a savings vehicle, but it's a risky one. And so people need to be aware of that. But if you had a central bank digital currency, they could have had you know, decent yields on it. So then you get a yield choice and a risk choice all within this world with instant payments and remittances. And that would have been different. So where Bitcoin fits within this is not yet clear, but the quality of the asset is without question. So I think the Bitcoin ecosystem has been much slower to develop than, than the Ethereum ecosystem. So it's going to take time to develop some of this stuff and allow the cross-collateralization. So then in which case, then the Bitcoin becomes the collateral base layer because it is high quality. But again, ETH is changing in terms of its quality in terms of its supply and these things. So it's not clear. It's not a competition either. You know, the whole space, if it's growing 100x, then all these pies are going to grow. So it's not one versus another. But it's just not advancing in the same way people have thought, I think, which I know is a bit contentious because people think of Bitcoin as, you know, the financial system. When you say a central bank digital currency, I'm curious what that means to you. And I'm also curious, why not an existing stable coin like yeah, no, USDC. Let's, sorry, yeah, yeah, my bad terminology. Yeah. Stable coins, absolutely perfect. It doesn't have to yeah. be a central bank digital currency. It's just that they're coming anyway. And so either way, same. Because this is another really interesting development. I was actually torn with the question at, at the top of the, the show here of what's been the biggest development. Another big one in my mind has been the meteoric rise of stable coins in terms of market cap, in terms of transaction volume, and also just in terms of the use cases that have emerged around them. That's another big miss. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Raul, in terms of the El Salvador approach. You know, it feels to me like they sort of got sold on Bitcoin and Lightning Network and, and all of the magic that that could bring to bear uh, without really fully analyzing the suite of technologies available to them and asking the question of which of these is most suitable, because I yep. think that probably without doubt, it would have ended up being a stable coin. But I also think it's an interesting question to start to parse out, you know, what countries are going to go the way of stable coins, what countries are going to go the way of their own digital currencies that might not actually be interoperable with any of the stuff that we're talking about here. You know, if you look at China's DCEP, it's not really blockchain based. And there, of course, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a wholesale kind of banning of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency activity in a way that we haven't yet. So another really contentious space to be keeping an eye on. Yeah, and I think you're right. 
I mean, I, I'm less hung up on it being central bank digital currencies. I, but I do think if you're the population of El Salvador and the dollar is your currency, then to have given them a stable coin and then the yields that come with that would have been, yeah. I think, more of a game changer. It's terrible to admit, but probably true. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's so tempting working in cryptocurrency to want to be sort of the idealist who's sitting here saying, you know, Bitcoin is going to unshackle us from any sort of connection or, or reliance on any government. And, you know, it's going to release us from the reins of monetary policy and, and all of this. But it's just not practical, actually, at the end of the day, and certainly well, not practical to try to bring to bear in a country like El Salvador that has enough issues to be, to be getting on with. And it needs yeah. to be incremental, right? You've got to take steps. Yeah. You can't just yeah. go to this promised land because simply having an 80 vol asset as the primary currency or collateral layer just doesn't work. Now, it's going to take 20 years before we get to that position. So we need to start in incremental steps that make sense, that don't overexpose people. The worst thing that could happen is if Bitcoin has an 80% bear market and half the savings in El Salvador are in Bitcoin. That's mm. going to hold back the space from further adoption. And that's my fear is we kind of rushed off to the races here without actually thinking through, as I said, what people actually need first and then build around that. And that's more incremental in an approach, I think. Well, the price did drop. They've lost. I think they came in and bought their 400 Bitcoin yeah. for the government's coffers. At about fifty-two thousand, right? We're trading a whole twenty-five percent from, or twenty percent from. I'm doing my math wrong here. From where it was, it's more about the individuals. If the government fine, it's their balance sheet, their problem. Sure. But if it's your life savings and you're the farmer in El Salvador, and suddenly your precious life savings that you've been sent by your son who's working in the U.S. and suddenly that's fallen by eighty percent, that's a huge stress. And yeah. we just need to be careful on this yeah. stuff. The IMF came out and sort of lambasted this whole strategy that El Salvador has adopted. And all you could hear in the crypto ecosystem was people saying, oh, of course the IMF would be saying this. You know, They have their own strategy and their own agenda here to try and kill cryptocurrency and kill Bitcoin. But if you actually read what the IMF was saying, it made perfect sense. They were making very good points, actually. And to your point, Raul, I think that there just needs to be a lot more care around the industry in terms of thinking through what makes sense, how to bring these things to market in a careful way uh, that doesn't end up shooting ourselves in the foot. Later yeah, on. although the regulation aspect is interesting because ignoring El Salvador, because they don't have investment choices, but for the average US citizen or European citizen, they have the choice of buying equities. They can go to the casino, blow all their wages, but you can't do it in cryptocurrencies or tokens. It's simply ludicrous. So it very much depends on how and what. And what you're doing in El Salvador is not the choice. And I love the choice. And they should be allowed to take that choice and that risk. But they don't have any other choices. They've got a bank with zero interest. And there's no equity market or other investment vehicles for them of any note. So you're giving them the only investment choices as an ATVOL asset. That's wrong. You should be able to choose your risk curve, and that's fine. Everybody needs to learn to, to grow up and take risk and understand what risk is. But here, there's no choice yet. So I get the idea, and I think it's a really nice idea, just too early. I couldn't agree more about what you're saying, and I want to just highlight this point. It's about opening up the options space. 
And so when you think about people that have been historically excluded from financial services, from financial systems, from the banking system, from the ability to be deemed credit worthy by a centralized authority that has maybe its own agenda, uh, what is, I think, most critically important to empower those people and communities and countries in some cases and give them agency is to lay out a set of options and to create an option space. And so I think it's an interesting question, is the industry more interested in proving adoption and use cases and these kinds of things, or in actually improving the lives of people on the ground. And I think that's an interesting moral, maybe ethical question that a lot of people uh, probably ought to be taking to heart more and using as a starting place. But I also want to go back to this, this question of stable coins. And so quick, just a reminder for our listeners, those who might be new, uh, a central bank digital currency is, of course, fiat. It is digital fiat. It is issued by a central bank. It has all the same properties. It's just a digital form of that money. So the same way you might pay something with a dollar bill or with metal money, with coins, quarters, whatever it might be in the United States, uh, central digital currency is that exact same function just done in a digital form. Whereas stable coins are uh, usually pegged to something, a basket of currencies or a particular currency, USDC, you know, pegged to the dollar coin, different. There's no central bank control, if you will, over that kind of uh, that form. And so um, I, I want to tease into this a little more into what you both said about in El Salvador, you know, a stable coin might have provided uh, more of a, well, it might have been a different option space, open up different sets of options for individuals in that country, particularly because it is a dollar backed currency already. Can you just go into that a little bit more and why stable coins specifically in that context might have proven to have uh, additional value beyond crypto? From my perspective, what are the issues they've got? One is the cost of remittances. The other is access to banking and moving money around the country, so to create that kind of velocity of money. And the other is a vehicle to maintain your savings in if you're unbanked or you don't trust your bank. So that is the key issue at hand. And a stablecoin solves pretty much all of that. You Instantaneous payments, somebody from the US, the son who works in the US can send it home to their family instantaneously. It's on their app, um, and then they can earn a yield. And stablecoin yields are about 8% currently. So that's a great yield. And that offsets pretty much any inflation in most major countries and even most of these emerging market countries. So that maintains their purchasing power. They don't have currency risk. They're not seeing prices move up and down versus their savings. And so that's why it solves that problem. Then Bitcoin against that would solve a savings problem or a risk. You, know, you want to take more risks with your savings because you've got excess but you've not given them the first part of the ladder. And that, that's the problem to me here. Yeah, if you talked to people in a lot of these countries that, that are the countries that we're talking about, when we talk about those that are excluded from the financial system uh, or don't have the same sort of financial freedoms that we've come to expect in the United States, you ask them, what's your ideal solution? What do you want access to? And they say US dollars. The ability to grant people access to something that is pegged to the US dollar, whether it's through a central bank digital dollar or whether it's through a stable coin like USDC, you know, that's a really, really powerful thing. And that is, in fact, giving people what they want. And they want it because of all of those reasons that Raul just mentioned. Giving people access to something like Bitcoin, there is a huge risk there and then a huge educational hurdle in terms of getting people to understand uh, what it is that they have here and how to manage the risks around it. And those problems are eliminated uh, largely when you're talking instead about a stable coin or something like that. 
You asked earlier about, you know, is DeFi actually providing the rails for the unbanked or, or people who haven't historically had the same access to be able to access financial markets? And I think the answer to that is today, largely no, not yet. But, you know, one of the things that I'm most optimistic about is the ability for DeFi to make those inroads and to grant that accessibility to people who, who don't have it today. As you say, Raul, I think that the first rung on that ladder is probably access to stable coins. And so that's, I think, the logical place for an initiative like this in El Salvador. I want to shift focus a little bit here and pick up, not just to be provocative, but, but it is, I think, an interesting conversation that Raul has pinged into by making this point about Ethereum becoming this kind of like world system right now. And just sort of like, I think what's really interesting to me about this sort of the question, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, if we want to reduce it to that, is like, what is it that brings sort of network effect value, right? People often focus on Bitcoin and say, well, this is the most secure network and therefore security is important. So therefore everyone's going to build on top of that. We've got attempts to do smart contracts and so forth. People talk about Ethereum not being as secure and, you know, Solidity has all these risks and bugs and so forth. But at the same time, the one thing Ethereum really has right now is just this sheer weight of innovative activity, this sort of breadth of developers doing NFTs, doing DeFi, doing stable coins. And I'm wondering, like, looking at that picture, how does this play out? Is it possible that Bitcoin ultimately, because of its security, wins? Or, or, or does that network effect of, of just sheer the zeitgeist of Ethereum, is that what is the most powerful thing right now? People spend too long thinking about this. You know, who's going to be the winner? And the mm. point being, the whole space is going to be the winner. My view is crypto space is currently a $2 trillion asset class. Most of the other major asset classes are around $150 trillion. Now, considering we're probably going to tokenize all of the other securities assets as well, you know, there's no reason this is not a $200 trillion asset class. So it's going up 100x from here. So the pie of all of these are going to grow, and they're all going to have different use cases. You know, we've seen the explosive growth of Solana on the back of costs of Ethereum. And again, different compromises for different things because Bitcoin has that purity layer and that's great. Maybe it works as the collateral because of this, because this is the one thing that we know is super secure. And, you know, even though we, we talked a bit about it before that saying right now it's not that doesn't mean in the future it won't be. But I think it doesn't matter. I don't think it's going to be a winner takes all world. It's a multi-chain world different use cases, different people will do different things because we're people and we just want to do different stuff. I mean, it's, it's very rare that everybody goes to one single thing. And I just don't think it's going to be the case. And I, I know that upsets the Bitcoin maximalists who, who say, well, if this is the best, the most secure, then this is going to be the future. Well, you know, Betamax was pretty good and it was better than VHS, but it didn't win. And it just happens right. because adoption is what matters. And could adoption change over time to Bitcoin? Sure, I've got an open mind to all of that. But the point being, it's really something for the you know, 20 year future. So right now, it's the explosive growth of the space overall that matters the most. Jill, I'd really like to hear your thoughts, and specifically when it comes to the way you think about things from the open money initiative, right? Because just the very way that you've defined that initiative, open money, you're sort of focusing on how do we unleash development and innovation for the interests of the whole? What do you take from what you're seeing going on? And I'm saying like NFTs, all the incredible amount of, of innovation right now as it pertains to what you're interested in creating. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Raul gave, I think, the very diplomatic answer, and I think the right answer here in many ways, but to be perhaps a bit more polarizing around it. The way that I would define the Ethereum versus Bitcoin debate is the following, which is that Ethereum, fundamentally, it's a platform. And on that platform, an ecosystem, a whole ecosystem of assets and applications has developed. Whereas Bitcoin itself is a product. It's not an ecosystem and it's not a platform. And there are certain traits and characteristics around Bitcoin, which mean, in my view, it's unlikely to ever become an ecosystem. And that's actually fine for Bitcoin, right? You know, Bitcoin can be a standalone product and it can be very successful in being the standalone product that it is. And that will primarily probably continue to take the form of being a hedge for people, uh, you know, an, an element of their portfolio and investment and so forth. But you can't really compare that to what it's like to be invested in an overall ecosystem where there's all of these different opportunities, all of these different use cases arising, and therefore all of these different users coming to the ecosystem. And you know, when you talk about opening up uh, innovation and, and you talk about opening up those different use cases, it's going to be the ecosystems and it's not necessarily only going to be Ethereum. You know, There are many competitors out there now of other layer ones and other base layer infrastructures that are nipping at Ethereum's heels. I wouldn't say that they're there yet. But I do think that it's the ecosystems that I tend to be more excited about these days. That doesn't make me any less bullish on Bitcoin. I think, as Raul said, the rising tide is going to lift all boats. And I think that Bitcoin, in my scale of certainty, I'm most certain about Bitcoin sticking around for the long haul and, and it persisting and continuing to create value. But it is very hard to ignore uh, the ecosystem of innovation that's happening on the platforms out there. So there's one thing I think that uh, could come in and be a, a hurricane, let's say, that kind of blows through all of this growth, uh, and that is regulation, the specter of regulation that's been hanging over the space for quite a while. And we've seen, I think if we look over the course of this past year, certainly a lot more awareness and then right towards the last few months, a lot of activity, especially in the United States. So what do you both make of all that? Is that actually going to be clarifying? Is it going to be helpful to have? Gain more clarity on what's allowed and not allowed or what the areas of primary interest are from these different agencies. And we can look at the U.S. specifically, but of course, this is happening in other parts of the world as well. Uh, or is this just, you know, the disaster, of the industry? I mean, what is your take on this? And are you, are you mildly positive? Are you super negative? What's the, what are the thoughts there? Look, I think that it's going to be a mixed bag for the next few years here in terms of what the fallout of the regulatory Clarity on the one hand, um, but you know, also headwinds on the other hand that are coming our way. And that goes for the United States. That's, that goes for the EU. We've certainly gotten a lot of clarity out of China. It's a little bit hard for me to try to spin that as a positive thing for either China or for the cryptocurrency industry in general, although clarity is still clarity at the end of the day. Look, I think that we are seeing, at least in the United States, a lot of regulators now saying and, and basically, you know, calling the industry out on some of the bad behavior that has gone on in it. And as someone who has been in the industry for, you know, five, six, seven years now, and seen a lot of bad behavior, along with a lot of very positive innovation, there's a small part of me that's very grateful that this is all happening. 
Uh, but I think that the the trick is to not throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater here and to make sure that we are all in the industry doing our part to educate regulators around the difference between, you know, an ICO scam and the creation of fundamentally new asset or asset class. You know, even as someone within the industry, I think that those lines can be fuzzy at times. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's going to be all about us being able to create standards within the industry for ourselves, to hold ourselves to those standards. And then, of course, again, to uh, go out and be evangelists for the good and, and the positive innovation that has happened. But it's not going to be an easy few years here, I would suspect. Yeah, my view on this is the laws that we have are outdated, particularly in the US, and the whole red herring about security or not security. The issue is it's too onerous to issue securities in the United States for the modern day. It doesn't take into account the fact that you can take risk in any way you want. You can go to the casino, blow all of your wages, and nobody cares. But God forbid if you invest in a cryptocurrency or a startup. So all of this, I think, ends up being a, a huge battle, and the outcome will be a compromise, a grand compromise of a recreation of laws that crypto or digital assets get dealt with as a different asset class. And I think securities laws need to be rewritten too. The 1934 law just does not work for today. In a world where we're trying to stop the rich getting richer and the poor staying poorer, you simply cannot stop people doing this. And there are risks and there is no voice of God who says that's a scam and that is not. As Jill said, early stage, everything looks like a scam. Every startup is going to go bust. Right, you know, having run a business myself and almost gone bust five times, I know exactly what that means. Were we a scam or not? No, but you know, and there's no voice of God that tells you that. The market tells you that. That is actually the best way of doing it. You just have to have risk warnings and some sensible guidelines, and people need to get prosecuted for fraud. So I think there's a grand compromise. And Jill's right. The next three years is going to be rocky because we have to have a big fight. And everybody will come together because in the end, there's 86 million millennials and they want change. Mm. And, they and it's, worth, it's worth noting Pleasure. as well that this is not a strictly crypto phenomenon either, right? We're seeing this play out yep. across financial markets, whether it, you know, it was GameStop and AMC and sort of the meme stocks, you know, whether it's the rise of the Robinhood generation and so forth, you know, we're seeing people want to take their finances into their own hands. and. I do think that consumer protection has a place, uh, but I do think that the hypocrisy, certainly in the United States, of pandering to the masses with the lottery and with gambling on the one hand, but then trying to block people from access to whether it's investment in startups or you know investment in cryptocurrencies, it, it needs to be called out and reckoned with, certainly. Yeah, it's morally wrong. It's morally wrong. You know, you're talking about financial inclusion, Jill. Here it is in the most developed yeah. nation in the world, writ large, mm -hmm. because what it does is actually benefits the financial system because you force everybody to go through the middleman because then that yeah. middleman says, you can invest in that and you, don't, you can't in that. There is no right. Yeah. They have no right to do that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> just on that closing note, because we do need to, to finish up here, I just want to highlight what you said there, Raul, about this need for a rewriting of these securities laws and other aspects of, of the legal infrastructure underneath the financial system. It was a topic that we had on a previous edition talking about the 1996 lessons of the Telecom Act. A lot of people 
myself included, believe that's the kind of initiative that needs to happen now. But we're saying this in a week in which Congress is about to once again fight over the debt ceiling and supposedly shut down the government. It, you know, we, we are yet again sort of being reminded of the failure of, of our uh, legislature and our political system. So I'm not overly optimistic, but I think at the end of the day, to your point, it's all going to just eventually have to get there to some overarching solution. That is all the time we have left. So we are going to have to wrap there. You guys were exactly what I thought we were going to get out of you, which is to sort of have this wonderful uh, interactive conversation. Uh, so many more things we could have gone with, but um, leave it at that. Thank you very much, Jill Carlson. Thanks, Ralph. Oh, thanks again, Sheila. What a great year it's been with you. And thank you to all of you, uh, listeners and viewers. Come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Jill Carlson, and Raul Paul. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. If you're a financial advisor, manager, or CFA looking to learn more about Bitcoin, investment strategies, and tools to share with your clients, then you're invited to attend Coindesk's Bitcoin for Advisors event on October 6th. It's a fully virtual event experience designed for advisors by advisors who have found ways to get compliance ready in order to add Bitcoin advising to their practices. You can head over to coindesk.com events to secure your complimentary registration today. That's coindesk.com slash events where you can register for free. We'll see you on October 6th and thanks for listening.